Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Jonah. And um, we're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to read um, a little more than uh, what your what, what, uh, bulletin says there. We'll look at um, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to skip to chapter t- verse 10. And then we're going to go to... Uh, Chapter 4, and look at the first five verses in chapter 4. So um, Jonah, as we just talked about, um, is a prophet, a minor prophet. And um, we, as we mentioned earlier within, in the children's message, Jonah is, is called um, by God to go in this town called Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh, I'm going to go to Tarshish. And God says, huh, we'll see about that. And so God, um, this whole book, um, shows us God's sense of humor. And how will God continues to give and call us and call us and call us. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3. This is after Jonah has tried to go to Tarshish and not Nineveh and has been in the, in the water and has been thrown into the water and um, big fish came and got Jonah and then the, the gave, and the, Jonah gave the fish indigestion. So he threw him up and he landed on dry ground. And here we are with Jonah now. I invite you now to listen to God's word. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against his proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's words to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city of three days' walk across. Jonah started into the city, walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes, from the greatest of them to the least significant. God saw what they were doing. They had ceased their evil behavior, so God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. But Jonah thought it was the early wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord, wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me, because it would be better for me to die than to live. The Lord responded, is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Brings the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Seriously, the joke is dead. That's a headline of an article in New York Times a few years ago. The article went on to say, in case you miss his obituary, the joke died recently after a long illness. Oh, oh, maybe 30 years of illness. His passing was barely noticed, drowned out perhaps by the dim of ironic one-liners, snark and detached bonsmots that pass for humor these days. The joke, well, it died a lonely death. There is no next of kin to notify. The comedy skit that hand buzzer, the Bob Newhart's imaginary tone monologues, well, they've passed a long way, long before. 
as America's greatest humanist once said of himself. Reports of such demise are greatly exaggerated. The joke, well, it's as timeless as Jonah. The book of Jonah, as we've talked about, is a funny book. The book of Jonah also finds out what kind of readers we are. Either we are literist or we're lovers of a tall tale. If we're literist, argues the theologian professor Lawrence Wood, we may lose a lot in Jonah. Not necessarily the point, but the sheer pleasure and the humor of the story. The whole book is structured like one big joke, starting with this outrageous premises of Jonah and his impossible assignment that God sends him on, to Jonah's outlandish response of running in the opposite direction of God, to Jonah's unintentionally saving effect of the hardness of all hardened sailors' hearts. The sailors repent, and then these same sailors begin to throw and save Jonah, I mean, excuse me, throw Jonah overboard after throwing everything else overboard. When Jonah thinks it's all over, that he has finally died like he wished. He gets swallowed and ends up in the belly of a big fish to eventually being vomited out on dry land. That's funny. Jonah's a funny story. And all this reading leads us up to this sentence. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's almost word for word from what God says to Jonah at the very beginning of Jonah. Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city. Proclaim the message I tell you. Comedians, they call this a callback. With a repeated line once or twice or three times. I wonder in our life where we have felt God's callback. Almost like a comedy skit. God calls us to go somewhere. God calls us to do something. But we just keep running and running and running and running in the opposite direction. Until eventually we find ourselves in the belly of a well. We get thrown up. We land on dry land. For only God to look at us and say the exact same thing that God had been telling us all along. Who says that God doesn't have a sense of humor? Nineveh, though. Nineveh is not funny at all to Jonah. Nineveh was the capital of Syria. The Syrian army was the largest and the most brutal war machine the world had ever experienced, and they took pride in such things. The Syrian empire would use intentionally shocking forms of warfare that engaged in the turn into an explicit, the stomach-turning art. They'd use this art to scare people. They do it in order to, to horrify others so they may not rebel against them. With such force and scare tactics, thus, who could blame Jonah if he was fearful to walk into that city? So he gets up and he goes about a third away into the city. He yells one sentence and then gets out of Dodge. But we learn, though, in the fourth chapter. His reservations to go into Nineveh has nothing to do with his fear of Assyrians. But instead, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he fears God's grace. The fear that God would not hold the Assyrians accountable. And for Jonah, 
that was no laughing matter. Often today, when it comes to accountability, our society removes all laughs and joys that go along with it. Elizabeth Lynn, a researcher of, on faith and giving, suggests society would like us to think about accountability with the idea of keeping accounts. This is how Jonah thought of accountability and what he and many others desire God to do and how God to react. Keeping accounts means that we keep watch on who owes whom and how we can use those debts to leverage what we want. But another type of accountability, Lynn argues, is a type of accounts called giving accounts. This shifts our focus on leverage to giving. We ask, then, what accounts can we give to one another? Accounts about what is going on. Accounts about our society, ourselves, our community, our church. Keeping accounts most often leads to scorekeeping. Giving accounts when done with sincerity and done with vulnerability, can open things up to a whole new world. Giving accounts, though, requires work because it requires an open and honest relationship. It requires us to go into Nineveh and tell everyone that we don't really care for to turn around and see a God who loves you, who cherishes you, who calls you by name. Giving accounts require us to see all the Ninevites in our lives as children of God. The late Will Campbell, I was reminded this week, was a Baptist minister, a civil rights pioneer that marched alongside Martin Luther King, he's the author of one of the most beautiful and challenging books written, A Brother to a Dragonfly. In it, he recounts a time in his late 1960s when he was to be a speaker at a student conference consisting of young, new left radicals of the time. Before he spoke, the conference viewed a documentary called The Ku Klux Klan and Invisible Empire which showed some horrors as the murder of three civil rights leaders in Mississippi and the murders of four little girls in, a, in Sunday school class in Birmingham. It took the viewer inside the Georgia Klan Clavering Hall, where initiation ceremony was in progress. At one point, the cannons were lined up in a military formation, and the command left face was shouted. One scared and pathetic figure turned right instead of left, bringing complete confusion to the formation and also bringing cheers and, and jeers and catcalls from the conference audience viewing the film. Cameron remembers that I felt a sickening in my stomach. Those viewing the film were alleged to be on the cutting edge of a social change. Both black and white women and men who had been taken up campuses in recent months, they used words like establishment as it was a poison. Who were there beyond that, though. Most of them were from middle and upper class families, 
They were students of recent or recent graduates of leading university and colleges all around the United States. And they were mean and tough, but somehow I sensed that there wasn't a radical in the bunch. Well, if they were radical, how could they laugh at a poor, ignorant farmer who couldn't tell his left hand from his right? If they had been radical, they would have seen this was no joke at all. And they would have been weeping, asking what produced such a person. After the film, it came time for Campbell's speech, and, and he, then he was led to, to a discussion of the film. So he stood up and he said, my name is Will Campbell. I'm a Baptist minister. I'm a native of Mississippi. I'm pro-Klansman because I am pro-human being. That's my speech. If anyone has any questions, I'll be glad to try and answer them. Well, the last sentence was out of his mouth before uh, Bedlam had broke out. Blacks and whites were shouting at Campbell. They were storming the hall. The next half hour was sheer, pure pandemonium. It was one of the few times Campbell says that he had actually felt bodily harm coming at him. Finally, with just a few people remaining in the audience, Campbell says it took time to get that little band of radicals settled down enough to point out to them that just four words uttered, pro-Klansman, Mississippi, Baptist preacher, coupled with one visual image of white, had turned them into everything they thought the KKK to be hostile, frustrated, anger, violent, irrational. And I was never able to explain to them that pro-Klansman is not the same as pro-Klan. The former has to do with the person, while the other deals with ideology. The end of Jonah. Jonah gets mad at God for giving grace to the Ninevites. And right then, God's mannerism turns from this juvenile, joking mode, and he gets serious with Jonah. God says, Jonah, you are worried about things that you did not labor over. Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, in which more than 120,000 persons don't know their right hand from their left? We're in a period of history surrounded by discussions of accountability. Who should and who should not be held to certain accounts based off their actions. Whatever our closely held opinions and convictions and certitudes around politics or just acts of accountability. The prophet of Jonah and all of scripture, this is what we do know about God. God holds us accountable. But also like Jonah, we learn it may not be come in the way that we want it to come or come in the way that we want it to look like. Because accountability does not start with us. Accountability begins with God, which is never an if-then statement. 
If we love God, then God loves us. No, that's not how God works. Each week we come uh, to, the, and we, to the font. We say the prayer of confession. Then we pour water into the baptism of fire, reminding us of our baptism, followed by the assurance of pardon. If we move that assurance of pardon before the prayer of confession, theologically, we'll be right in line. Our assurance of pardon is not based on our confession to God. Our assurance of pardon is based on God's love for us. This is what happens with Jonah. Right before our reading this morning, Jonah prays this prayer. In this prayer, Jonah never asks for forgiveness, never apologizes for turning away from God. There is no come to Jesus moment at the bottom of that fish. Joseph swallowed up out of God's love. Spit up and put back on dry ground out of God's love. God gives to Jonah and to you and to me new life. And then redeems us with grace. It is love that Jonah is accountable And this accountability always starts with our worshiping, sacrificing to God. Notice that through the entire book of Jonah, the sailors, the Ninevites, the fish, the wind, the water, after receiving life and redeeming grace of God, then they worship and sacrifice to God. God sends Jonah to Nineveh, not just for the Ninevites, to turn away from their wicked ways. This mission was just as much about Jonah. Whatever messy situation you find yourself in this morning, no matter how much animosity surrounds it, God calls us to see each other as a child of God. God calls us to have conversations with one another. God calls us to be in relationships. The joke, if it is a joke, turns out is on us. One tall tale after another. God is slowly changing you and me and everyone in this room. In the midst of the South Africa's struggle against the apartheid, Archbishop Bishop Desmond Tutu stood out as one of the most respected in voices for the radical harmony and human dignity. But even the closest colleagues of Tutu were distressed by Tutu's moderation and his tolerance. They, they wished he had been more aggressive with his opponents and who were spearing hate after hate after hate. And one of them said at his age, you think as old as he has gotten, you think he would have learned how to hate just a little bit more in life. But there's a problem with Tutu. Tutu doesn't take himself so seriously. Because he literally believes as tall tales of the gospel, Desmond Tutu knew that he was in a world created by God and Tutu knew punchline. God's script of accountability was never going to change. That type of accountability that always shows God's love for us, which does not take us off the hook for our actions. 
Quite the opposite, really. God's accountability puts us on the hook. On the hook to confess our sins and to live into such consequences and to worship and give sacrifices to God by giving God's love and grace to everyone we meet. Even every one of those Ninevites in our lives. Our community is changing right before our eyes. They say over the next 10 years, the population of Lillington may triple, quadruple. I wonder as people are moving in, how does Lillington Presbyterian Church want to introduce ourselves? Do we introduce ourselves as a church that keeps accounts? Or do we introduce ourselves as a church who gives accounts? If we believe in the Gospels, whether we read it as literalists or the love of our tall tale, there's only one answer to that question. Let's not take ourselves so seriously. I can assure you, God doesn't. And besides, he wants to miss all the joy and the laughter along the way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.